I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in our series, An Alternative Society. Jesus knew and experienced the pain and turmoil of sharing one's life in the vulnerability of community. And even so, he thought of community as a gift. Once, uh, when I was a little boy, and it only happened the one time, uh, my dad dyed his hair. I don't know why he did that. He, I mean, he was a good dad, don't get me wrong. He was attentive and present and loving. <laughs> but he could be like a private, solitary man. And I guess there's a lot about, you know, the inner machinations of his interior world that I didn't know. So I guess maybe my theory is that the first signs of gray had appeared in his otherwise brown head of hair, and maybe he panicked. Uh, so he bought one of those, like, cheap rectangular boxes from the local pharmacy, you know, the one that seemed, I guess, to match the, his natural brown color, and would hide the ominous gray, and he mixed the color with the developer, and he lathered the whole thing together, the bathroom stinking of chemicals, the way it does when you use one of these things, and then he waited. And when the whole thing was over, his hair was very red. It was uh, like a bright, bright cartoony red, like Ronald McDonald red. And it created this bizarre contrast above his, like, brown beard. So he looked weird. He looked real weird. And the next morning was Sunday. Uh, Sunday is church. And, uh, and my family never missed church. So what will people say, he said to himself. Now, you, you didn't know my dad, so you'll have to trust me when I say this is a hilarious predicament. The, uh, he was like the quintessential NASCAR barbecue southern man. And uh, our family, like I said, never missed church. But my dad told the family that he had suddenly, suddenly contracted an illness in the hours between dyeing his hair and, 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 and rather than infect it, you know, innocent parishioners, he opted to stay home and rest for the good of everyone. So the rest of us went to church. Everyone was asking about my dad's unusual absence. Where the heck is Jerry? You guys are all here. Where's Jerry? Eventually, my mom finally told a friend of hers about the hair dye and the Ronald McDonald red, the whole thing. And the two of them were giggling through whispers. And then that woman told her husband and that dude told his friend. So naturally, later that afternoon, during the NASCAR race, actually, which happens on Sunday afternoon, the doorbell rang. Now, small church, small town, word spreads. The deacons of uh, New Providence Baptist concluded that it was their spiritual responsibility <laughs> to visit Jerry Porter at his home that Sunday night. L you know, lest he somehow feel unloved. These are... God-fearing Baptist. You can't have that. So they make the house call. Ding dong. And then unbeknownst, I might add, to my red-haired dad, so he just went marching up to the front door looking like the little mermaid and <laughs> flung the thing open. And then the camera flash was the first surprise. <laughs> and, uh, group of his friends fighting back tears of laughter was the second. Now, I'll admit, I'm honestly not entirely sure how much of that whole thing I remember from having actually witnessed it or how much of it I remember based on innumerable retellings from my mom or from the people in our church. It's a funny story. In the grand scheme of things, it's not that funny. It's like sitcom level funny. It's funny if you know the people. I don't remember it because it was funny. I remember it because when I observed it or whether or not I observed it all myself or only feel like I did because I heard about it so many times, I remember the story and I remember wanting it for myself. In the story, even after they'd surprised him and taken his picture, my dad was on the front porch with all his friends from church, and they were all laughing together. And there was the sense that even though he'd tried to hide this embarrassing thing, everyone knew about the ridiculousness of it, and there was this familial vulnerability to it all, at least in the way I received it. 
Who else can one laugh about so ridiculous an embarrassment than friends like this? I didn't know then because I was very small, but I would learn later that my dad had fought with these men. He had known them for decades. He'd been angry with them from time to time, had a falling out with a few of them and then reconciled. Years and years of friendship that seemed to me back then entirely idyllic. The whole thing, this little incident with the red hair dye, ended in laughter. And that seemed to indicate, even when I was very small, something about friendship and family that I wanted even back then. Now, that's uh, not the last cute little anecdote that I brought with me this evening. We're in a series all about community, the alternative society that we call the church. It's not the first time that we've talked about this. It won't be the last. You know as well as I do that pastors tend to uh, romanticize community. And full disclosure, I am going to talk about the beauty of, commu beauty of community in just a little bit, but for years now, across the seven plus years of our church, we've been speaking, I think, candidly, or at least as candidly as we know how, about how wonderful it can be to share a life with your brothers and sisters and how challenging, even painful, it can be. And I'll talk about that stuff too. And I've been in the game a long time now, at least relatively speaking. I've been showing up to a small group of some kind every week for the last 12 or 13 years. So I, like a lot of you guys, have lots of stories. A minute ago, David read from one century biography of Jesus that we now call the Gospel of Mark. If you have a Bible in hand, go ahead and turn there to Mark chapter 10. We're going to read through it one more time before we're done. Now, before we actually get to the text and unpack it a little bit, uh, let's talk about the context. This scene immediately follows this really fascinating exchange. A lot of you guys probably know this story. A rich guy comes up to Jesus of Nazareth. And he asks him, how do I get something called eternal life? Now, if you know the story, Jesus tells the rich guy the last thing he wants to hear. You've got to sell everything that you have, give it away to the poor, and the guy just won't do it. So he goes away sad in the language of the text. And then Jesus turns around to his friends, his uh, apprentices, what we would call his small group, his community, and he tells them how hard it is, how nearly impossible it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then we read in Mark 10, beginning with verse 28, then Peter, one of Jesus' friends and apprentices, speaks up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father, or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. Exactly what this rich dude had asked about. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Peter, one of Jesus' friends and apprentices, apparently feels the same way most of us do when we hear this terrible exchange between Jesus and the rich guy. We wonder, oh my God, am I willing to sacrifice what is necessary in order to follow Jesus faithfully? Would he ask something so huge of me? Which is a scary question to ask sometimes, so we become like children. I've got three of these things now, children, that is, <laughs> and complimenting one of them tends to activate some insecurity in one of the other ones and conjures like this plea for affirmation. That like oh, you said, say to one of them, wow, you're so smart. And the other's like, what about me? Am I smart? You're like, oh my God, please be cool for one second. I'll affirm you later when there isn't someone to scavenge for compliments. 
That is apparently uh, Peter in this story. He seems to feel exposed. He's seen this terrible thing happen between Jesus, the rich man. The rich man goes away sad. And he's like, oh my God, is that me? Am I like that? So maybe he feels insecure. I'm not making this up. One scholar I read this week said that his question to Jesus is essentially a plea for affirmation. So I imagine personally Jesus smiling when he turns to Peter and says, oh, believe me, I know how much you've given up. God knows how much you've given up, and he's going to take care of you. Just watch. Yes, you may sacrifice things like ambitions or finances, livelihood, what, I don't know, even some close relationships for the sake of Jesus, but it won't be for nothing. And don't read that as kind of like a reward system, as if God requires you to go through painful bouts of proving your allegiance, but then you get a prize afterward. It's not a tit-for-tat formula. It's a cause and effect dynamic. Yes, following Jesus will be, and many of you know this well enough, at times anyway, and in certain ways, very costly, but you get the kingdom of God. You get Jesus and his way of life. Faithfulness to the way of Jesus could create enmity between brothers or sisters or mothers and fathers and children, but in the kingdom of God, you also gain brothers and sisters and mothers and children to Jesus the family of God, community, is a gift. But because he's Jesus, he can't help but throw the word persecution into his list of stuff that you get when you get the kingdom. It's like, it's amazing. Just wait and see. Also persecution and eternal life. Now, most of you, if you follow Jesus for any length of time, you probably don't need convincing of that tension that the kingdom of God, but also you sacrifice in order to receive the way of Jesus. But let me overmake my point here from the scriptures. First, let's look at a book that we now call Acts, which is actually a sequel to Luke's biography of Jesus. And Acts documents the rise of the first Christian communities after Jesus has come back from the dead and ascended into heaven. Weird, wild stuff. The Holy Spirit comes on the disciples, all kinds of new people are hearing the story of Jesus for the first time, and it becomes this beautiful portrait of shared life and what we now call the church. And we read this. It's one of our favorite stories in the New Testament. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Amazing. The people of God are fulfilling a way of life prescribed all the way back in the Torah, what we now call the first five books of the Old Testament, this way that God intended for people to live where they shared resources and divested things in order to care for the needy among them. It's beautiful. God's people have essentially become a new temple built not from brick and mortar, but from all kinds of human beings knit together as a new family. So it's a new kind of temple that houses the presence of God, but it's made up of people. And then you turn the page and you read this. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. 
So if you keep reading this story, by the way, there's this bonkers scene where Ananias and Sapphira drop dead. There's my clickbait for the book of Acts, if you want to read <laughs> which actually is not there for no reason. It echoes this strange story from Leviticus. It's in chapter 10, if you want to read it on your own time, in which two other individuals who had introduced corruption into the temple suddenly dropped dead. And both stories tend to confuse the modern sensibility because people drop dead in them. But what I find so fascinating is how frustratingly relatable the whole thing is. In this particular story, it isn't some kind of wild debauchery to first infect this like idyllic portrait of communal love. It's simple selfishness and dishonesty. The guy did sell property and he did bring some of the money to the apostles' feet, but he hoards a secret amount for himself and then he lies about it. And this more subtle poison, selfishness and deceit, many of you know well enough is as deadly to life in community as egregious debauchery. But if you want to know about the egregious debauchery, just keep reading the rest of the New Testament. Here, I'll show you. Watch this. Later, in the book of Acts, a disciple of Jesus called Paul visits this big port city of Corinth, and he tells people about Jesus. A bunch of people come to faith, and now a new community has taken shape in the most unlikely of places, the city of Corinth. It's amazing, beautiful stuff. But then if you turn some pages to the letter that we call 1 Corinthians, Paul has now moved on from Corinth to tell other people about Jesus and start more churches, and he gets a letter telling him that things have now gone bananas back in the church in Corinth. And the letter starts like this, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours which is amazing. This is a proper church. These are Christians to whom he's writing. Sanctified, called to be holy. They follow the same Jesus as everyone else throughout the ancient Mediterranean, all that stuff. But then as the letter goes on, you learn that within this community of sanctified believers, there are, to name a few things, quarrels over who follows which leader. Some claim Paul, some claim Peter, others a guy called Apollos. There's sexual immorality in the church, people bragging about it. There were lawsuits among the Christians. There was gluttony and drunkenness during communion, and people were overlooking those among them who were in need. There was chaos in the church gathering. There were people who were kind of prioritizing their own unique spiritual experience and vying for the spotlight at the expense of order and other people. And to be clear, in his letter, if you read through the whole thing, it's fascinating, Paul corrects and rebukes all of that stuff. But when he closes the whole thing out, he writes this, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus, amen. It's the last line in the whole letter. It's the final verse. He does not say, oh my God, you guys are out to lunch. Shut this thing down. It is a sham. He loves them in Christ Jesus, which means they still belong to the same family. They're still the church. They're still community with all that terrible stuff on the list. Now, I'm no psychologist, but I've been a pastor for a minute now, and it is my professional opinion <laughs> that if you've got a church with people fighting about leadership and getting drunk in communion and filing lawsuits and doing all kind of nasty stuff and bragging about it, my guess is that pain and conflict are rippling throughout the community. Our church is small, and I'll tell you this for free, people get upset when other people do weird, messed up stuff. 
Understandably so. I've been on the giving and receiving end of that dynamic across these seven years of Van City. And Paul, he doesn't give us like stats on what's going on and among how many people, but I'm assuming that not every single Christian in the Corinthian community was engaged in all this foolishness. And that means that there were probably other people who were probably just there being hurt by it. And yet, throughout the letter, Paul never writes, this church is busted, you good apples, get out of there, (laughs) forget it, we'll start over again with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus, all of you. Why do we need this? Church, community, the whole thing, all personalities, all people are designed to connect with other people. This is not a uniquely Christian idea. We know this from history. We know this from neuroscience and psychology. You don't have to follow Jesus to believe that there's something intrinsically dangerous about hyper-individualism or about the way isolation and loneliness can destroy people. But here's the rub. The gift of community is about more than just alleviating loneliness. There are all kinds of ways, healthy or decidedly less so, to alleviate loneliness. Church is much more than that. And the frustrating irony is that to actually live into the beautiful gift of community, the more vulnerable one becomes to the ugliness of it. Now, I'll admit something to you guys uh, that my therapist told me years ago, and this is embarrassing. Uh, He said to me that I was an introvert. I was appalled. No, I'm not. I told the PhD of decades of experience. I was like, no, I'm not. And he said, oh, man, all that means is that you are more energized by time to yourself. Can you believe that? I had no idea. All this time, I thought introvert meant pretentious butthead. (laughs) Actual psychological terminology. Because I actually like hanging out with people. I enjoy it even. I go out of my way to make it happen. But then, you know, I get all tired, I guess. (laughs) My point is that at this point, we realize that however you're wired or whatever your preference is, human connection is necessary for things like mental health and human development. But the gift of community in Christ is more than that. Community is the twofold answer to the human condition, that we need other people and that we need Jesus and we learn to follow him with other people. Joseph Hellerman wrote this, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. In community, in real community anyway, we confront the sobering reality that we're not so great after all. 
And that in order to allow other people to carry our brokenness, the things that are not so great about us, we have to be prepared to carry the brokenness of our brothers and sisters. And this too is a gift. But it doesn't always seem like that. People want to go believe with other people, from book clubs to suicide cults. We want to be united by something more than just a species, something bigger than ourselves, something to which we can dedicate our time, our lives. So we follow the intrinsic lead to a group. You like the same music as me. You vote the same way I do. You agree with me on TV shows or sexuality or gender or even justice or existence or God. So now we can be friends or we can occupy the same digital space until something rubs us the wrong way. Years ago, I've told this story to you guys. I was at a, a pizza place in Portland. We're sitting at one of those long tables where you can't possibly socialize with everybody, so you kind of become confined to the conversation of your immediate vicinity. You can't move around now. Everyone's like, oh, geez, he didn't want to talk to us. So virtually everyone in this particular uh, evening was a churchgoer. We'd come from this kind of church-wide event across Portland. A bunch of people went out to eat, mostly young millennials with apartments in the city. And they were designers and university students, so they worked at places like Nike and Intel. A lot of us didn't know each other. We'd come from with different groups of friends and become scattered in the chaos of being seated. So what do you do to get the conversation going? You talk about what's right in front of you. In this case, pizza. The pizza, I argued, was too fancy, too authentic. It was like paper thin and soft. Others disagreed. The pizza was delicious, they said, but the atmosphere was all wrong. The decor was off, off trend. And we talked that way for a while. Superficial, safe. And then someone took the next logical conversational step. Where do you work? What do you do? Me, I worked for one of those churches. Ah, interesting. Tell us more. We know about that church. We've been there, but we all go to other churches. And though the conversation had kind of broached a slightly more personal dimension than pizza preferences, it somehow resumed the exact same shape as moments prior. Some argued that my particular church was too hip. Others disagreed. The church's trendiness was acceptable, but its particular approach to worship did not suit their personal preferences. And someone mentioned that they did not feel appropriately welcomed upon their first and only visit to said church. One guy, I kid you not, took issue with the width of the pastor's pant legs. He said, I just don't, he got up there, I just don't trust a pastor in skinny jeans. And I was like, oh, right. I remember that part in the Apostles' Creed where they <laughs> vest orthodoxy in the width of someone's pant leg. Church, it turns out, is a lot like a Portland pizza restaurant. It was like any other Yelp listing, subject to our critique as consumers. What we like and what we didn't and why. And whether or not we are going to take our business elsewhere. And that is, after all, what we are. We are consumers. We're the byproducts of a lifestyle obsession. We're the illegitimate children of Grubhub and Amazon Prime. We've killed off all our experts and crowned user reviews and uneducated influences for their superior reliability. Now we get like shopping recommendations from robots and parenting advice from TikTok. Don't do that, by the way. So we objectify things. We sit like children, turning the Christmas gift over in our hands and scrutinizing it and looking the gift giver in the face and telling them, well, we like these things about the gift, but not so much these other things. And there are all sorts of reasons that we do that when it comes to church anyway. I know we've been hurt. We've seen some really gnarly stuff. I know, I know, and yet. 
When I was uh, 20-something, a couple of my friends and me would routinely haunt the local video rental warehouse in our small town. You don't have these things anymore, so I should tell you it's a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing that we have lost to the annals of history. And what we would do is rent a pile of old B-movies, like five of them on VHS, horror movies and monster movies and weird sci-fi stuff from the 70s and 80s. And then we would watch them all in a night, back to back to back to back. And we hoped that it would be really bad because that would be funny. And we wanted to be like shaking each other awake and saying, no, look alive, you suffer through this with the rest of us, you know. It's the same reason that people want to go on hikes with other people or, you know. (laughs) Jeez. Wow, quite a reaction, yeah, quite a reaction. I got to say, I did this teaching last week at another church as a guest, and they didn't like that one either. I was like, I'm leaving it in there. Anyway, it's why we want, stay with me for a second, it's why we want gym buddies or to run a marathon with a friend. You know, it's, it's honestly, and I mean this in a beautiful sense, it's the same ethos that binds wonderful things like recovery groups or monasteries. It's the idea that we want to dedicate ourselves to something And we know somehow that to orient ourselves against the grain of what's convenient and easy is somehow important, and that if we do that with other people, we're more likely to do it at all, and that true friendship and family are both forged in the fires of hardship. Brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. I was raised in the church in the uh, rural deep south in the 80s and 90s, Christian family, quasi-Christian culture, so a lot of it was not so great, and some of that not-so-greatness did a number on me. Not a terribly unique story, I know, and you guys have heard all about it. I'm not the only person in the room with what we now call religious trauma. The tangles And the whole thing kind of became evident to me in my adolescence. And then I spent most of my early adulthood, quite frankly, wanting to burn the whole thing down. And in the years beyond all that, I just wanted to course correct. I figured, okay, so that was a bad church experience. How do I get a good church experience? But eventually, if you spend enough time with him, God burns away that anger and resentment. I actually loved church as a kid. And then I hated it. And then I was somewhat open, but mostly cynical. And then I became cautiously optimistic at best. And then I learned to love the church again. Interestingly, across that entire timeline, people did not get any better. And all those years later, God shined a light into the kaleidoscope of my memory, once entirely black, and I saw things that I had not allowed myself to see in my anger and resentment. And I suddenly remembered as if for the first time a woman from our church who rushed over and held on to my wailing mother after my mom got the phone call saying her sister had been killed in a car crash. I remember watching them and thinking, this is just Miss Tessie from church. And I also remember a group of grown men giggling like kids because my dad accidentally dyed his hair red and the kind of friendship that was indicative of that scene. And I remembered a man in our church For years, all I remembered about this guy was his closed-mindedness, his rigidity, his fundamentalism. I didn't think anything good about him at all. And then one day, I was praying. He wasn't on my mind at all. And I suddenly remembered that when I felt like an outsider, there was a time when he sat with me and listened to me and prayed over me one afternoon, and it meant a lot to me. Now, doing a good thing, I know, doesn't nullify having done a bad thing. 
but no person is one thing only. And the church is made up of people. These complex configurations of beautiful things and not so great things, and the whole of it is a gift from God. There's this weird pervasive myth floating around in post-evangelical circles about an alleged idyllic and long-gone Christian era during which there were no church buildings and no organized religious rituals and none of these modern contrivances, no bureaucracy and leadership. And so a cynical post-church people went looking for reinvention. A walk in the woods is my church, or hanging out with my friend at the pub is my church, whatever. We don't have these systems and authority or the petty squabbling and bureaucracy and rituals. But then you read the New Testament and realize how much of it is dedicated to church authority dealing with the sin and petty squabbles of local church communities practicing religious rituals throughout the ancient Mediterranean. Now, of course, they didn't have electric guitars and coffee carafes in the first century, if that's what you mean. But the basic components of the church gathering have endured for centuries of the Jesus movement all over the world. The things that we take for granted, coming together in a specific planned, consistent rhythm in a specific place, all kinds of different people united around discipleship to Jesus, not just affinity groups and pals hanging out based on shared interests and compatible personalities. There have always been hymns, singing, opening the scriptures together to learn, preaching, pursuing the spirit of God, rituals like communion and baptism and food and drink, leadership, authority. If you told, I think, a first century Christian, well, my church is, I just hang out with my buddy and we figure out spirituality on our own. The first century Christian would have probably said, what the heck are you talking about? That is not church. Belief inevitably has a kind of gravitational pull toward other believers, subcultures, shared interests. We are wired to share that which compels us with other people. And when that gravitational pull brings us into the company of other people, if that thing that we'd hope to share penetrates deeper than superficiality or screens, then the same gravity that brings us into the orbit of other people brings us also into vulnerability and we can get hurt, and we can do plenty of hurting ourselves. It took me years to understand that for all our terrible evil, we need one another, that God can and does subvert even the brokenness of community for good by using it to generate within us, if we let him, his compassion and mercy and ever-present awareness of our ongoing need to be saved. So the way I see it, there's two ways you can look at this whole thing. Either Jesus was wrong and community isn't such a great gift after all, what with the uh, corruption and brokenness and all, or it's somehow the case that the inherent brokenness and inevitable pain of community do not make it any less a gift from God. God doesn't engineer our sin just to make us more empathetic. And he doesn't condone us hurting one another for some greater good. Read all the letters to the churches throughout the New Testament. He takes that stuff very seriously. But God meets us in the chaos and in injuries of shared life. And he can, if we let him, mock every attempt of the evil one to drive us out of the church by repurposing even the hurt we endure and the hurt we distribute to instead 
bind us together in our shared need for salvation rather than driving us apart. And that is a gift. God, aren't we broken? Have mercy on us, all of us. And yes, we need accountability, of course. We will need repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. Sin has consequences that should be dealt with accordingly. But we can be more than a relationally conditional social club. I'm here as long as it works for me. I'm here until someone wrongs me or tells me something about my own life that I don't want to hear. We can be brothers and sisters, the gift of God to one another. All of it is a gift. Brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, I have got a long way to go and all that, but at this point, I've already seen a lot. I've accumulated a lot of stories about church and communities. I've made friends and lost friends. I've had people show up to the hospital to hold my kids when they were born. And you realize how incredible it is to share something so profound with other people bound together to you by the love of God. These were people that I knew from church, the first ones to come and hold my first kid. And you're looking at someone from your community and being like, oh, this is why. This is important. When my dad was dying in a hospital up in Portland, it was a friend from church who went with me to see him and talk to the doctors. And I doubt he wanted to go to the hospital any more than I did, but I'll never forget that he did that for me. Another person from my church bought my plane tickets home for the funeral because I didn't have any money. Another person from my community drove me to the airport. I'm not from here. My family isn't out here. The church was my family. And that's the big, beautiful, easy to romanticize stuff there's also the hilarious stuff. This is one of my favorite stories about church, period. When I uh, worked at a church in Portland, I used to skateboard to the church office every morning because I'm so young and cool. <laughs> Why y'all laughing? Still super relevant and punk rock. And then my skateboard was tragically stolen out of the trunk of my car. And a day or two later, uh, Peter, uh, right here. Everybody look at Peter. <laughs> Peter who's been uh, going to church with me for many, many years now, and he's in my community. He was taking a walk to work, I believe, in the Pearl District. It was raining and everything, and he sees some dude carrying my stolen skateboard. Oh, it was unmistakable. You'd know this thing if you saw it. And in this incredible, this is a true story. It's beautiful. In an incredible moment of spiritual clarity, he was empowered by the Spirit as a brother in Christ. He took a deep breath, and he said, Hey, you... And then he snatched my skateboard back and made a run for it. <laughs> That's right. It's a true story. <laughs> it's a true story. Feel free to use that to inspire other people. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds, all that stuff. Uh, that's one of my favorite church stories. <laughs> he showed up to my apartment. He bust in like Kramer, soaking wet. and was like, here, here you go. I'm late for work. And he ran back out the door. I have other stories that are neither romantic nor hilarious. They're just embarrassing or painful. I have had people who love me enough to take me aside and tell me, hey, look, the other night when you were talking about that you know, so-called difficult person, you went too far and you slandered them under the flimsy guise of venting. You didn't demonstrate any kindness or compassion. You just, it was all about malicious sarcasm and it wasn't right and you need to repent. That didn't feel good to hear that, but it was true. And then I've had that same thing that I did, the thing for which I was called to repentance, done to me. 
There was a season during which I had spent months untangling a mess in which someone I once thought of as a friend went on what seemed like a mission to say as many terrible things about me uh, to as many people as possible. And I didn't shrug and say, oh, well, people are people, you know. Like I said, I'm not resigned to people behaving terrible. We should take sin seriously and deal with it. And we can do that with compassion. I can say that from experience. But if you are engaged only to the degree that nothing ever bothers you and you never bother anyone else, that's not community. You can't give your life over to a free concert and a TED Talk on Sunday. We're trying to live for something together, not host a free get-together with coffee. Are you kidding? I don't care about that. If somebody hurts you at a social event, you just drop it. Who cares? And sermons are, and songs are wonderful, don't get me wrong, but you can listen to both with headphones. That's not a family. And let me tell you this, if you haven't found this out already, following Jesus faithfully is going to cost you if you decide to do it. Unwavering faithfulness to the truth of Jesus, courageous fidelity to orthodoxy is going to cost you. I don't know what, a desire, a plan, a livelihood, something you wanted, something you were told you deserved, what you thought was your identity, maybe even a relationship that was precious to you. So look around, brothers, sisters, mothers, children. To do this, you need to be able to come through those doors week after week and to circle up around a dinner table week in and week out again and again and share faithfulness. You need to be able to borrow someone else's faithfulness when you don't have enough. You need to be able to inspire and encourage by your demonstration of faithfulness when your brothers and sisters have very little of their own. That is a gift. I'll be honest, when I heard story after story about someone going around saying awful stuff about me that wasn't true, uh, I was upset, mad even. So I forced myself to pray for this person because I'm a Christian and all. And as I prayed, God reminded me that I've been rebuked for the way that I've talked about other people too. And he didn't say that, I don't think, to be like, gotcha, or you know, to embarrass me or discourage me. He did it to say, Look how broken you both are and see how much you both need saving. And where else can you go to work out your salvation with fear and trembling than in the community of God's people? If you don't carry one another's brokenness, who will carry it at all? The gift is that you are broken just like everyone else, and God's grace can make enough room in this community to carry both your brokenness and your healing. You don't deserve this family any more than the very least among us. It is a gift. And yes, I know that any of us can likely point to some institution or church who claimed Jesus and was yet guilty of some objectively heinous thing. I know, I know. But... When you have a community that, for all its mistakes and shortcomings, and where you have people, you'll have both of those things. When you have a community that, for all its mistakes and shortcomings, is trying, trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus together, to flee from the complexity of it all, not if, but when we are hurt, often requires us to turn a blind eye to our own imperfections rather than beating our chest before God and crying out, have mercy on me, a sinner. You cannot do this by yourself. You can't. 
and you don't have to, and that is a gift. Because there are men and women in this room, young and old, who want to follow Jesus, and they need you, and you need them, because, and please listen to me, he asks everything of us. Remember Peter? He hears this exchange between Jesus and the rich man and says, well, we've left everything to follow you. We don't come here week after week, year after year to open the ancient sacred scriptures together as interesting food for thought. This is not a weekend retreat. This is not a book club. We, we stand with centuries of Christians who believe Jesus was telling the truth when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you're thinking, oh my gosh, this guy's intense, don't worry, the normal guy will be back next week. <laughs> Wherever you're out and figuring out what you do and don't think about Jesus, you are absolutely welcome to be here. The beautiful thing about community is that it can hold all of our spectrum of belief, everyone's journey. There are people in this room right now who don't know what they think about Jesus, and that's fine. There are people in this room who are quite upset with Jesus, who are on the fringe of disbelief altogether, and there are people in this room who have been following Jesus faithfully for decades. That is what it means to be a community in the first place. Whatever it is that you think about God, Jesus, the church, you are welcome to be here. What I mean by all this is to be forthcoming and saying, we are trying to live for something together. With all those stories represented in the room, we're trying to live for something together. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That is a costly thing to confess. Now, for us, it's not going to be like uh, the persecutions of the early church or something like that, but it's going to cost you just the same. And the gift of God to hobble forward and walk the narrow road of discipleship is that we do it arm in arm with brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and in the age to come, eternal life. So it all depends on how you look at things. There was a time when church, quite frankly, aggravated my cynicism, and I scrutinized the people and the programs and the language and the form and the songs, whatever. But after decades of following Jesus, I now understand that while it's inevitable that at any given church, on any given Sunday, there will be people who believe weird things or who are guilty of hypocrisy and sin or some little thing that I don't personally prefer. The same is true anywhere you find human beings. But these people, they are coming together in all their imperfections to pursue Jesus, and that is beautiful and unique and holy. People haven't changed. My perspective has I no longer labor under the arrogant delusion that I'm any better than any of you or that I know more than Jesus did or does. Jesus is my master, my Lord. He says that you are my brothers and sisters in all our great, big, flaming mess of humanity. We are a family, and it is a gift from God. Thank God for this gift. Let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to empower us to be a family. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.